the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with uh, Peter Wood. He's president of the National Association of Scholars and author of Wrath, America Enraged. The book is published by Encounter. He'll join us in the second half of the uh, first hour. And then we're going to take a look at the uh, Supreme Court as it is preparing to hear arguments tomorrow on Roe versus Wade in the case that could result in its being overturned. We'll take a look at some of the options, how we got here, and what the court is likely to do. So that's coming up in this um, second hour of today's program. Well, three people were killed and eight were injured, including one teacher, according to law enforcement, at a Michigan high school where a shooting left three students uh, dead and a 15-year-old suspect in custody. Well, the 15-year-old student at a Michigan high school was taken into custody today after allegedly shooting and killing three students and injuring eight others, including a teacher, according to the Oakland County Sheriff's Office. The deceased victims are a 16-year-old male, a 14-year-old female, and a 17-year-old female. Two of the injured victims were in surgery as of 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Six others were in stable condition with gunshot wounds. Well, sheriff's deputies were called to Oxford High School at about 12.51 p.m. Eastern Time and apprehended the suspect within five minutes, who essentially gave himself up but refused to speak. Uh, the authorities uh, believe he acted alone, was uh, uninjured, and is not answering questions at this time. We we're executing a search warrant at the suspect's home, uh, said the uh, sheriff's, um, the undersheriff. Uh, we have talked to the parents, and all I can tell you is that they didn't want their son to talk to us, and they have hired an attorney. A handgun was also recovered at the scene. Multiple injured victims were transported to local hospitals. Law enforcement received at least 100 911 calls after the shooting. An Oakland County Sheriff's deputy who was assigned to the school was one of the officers who took the suspect into custody at the time. Uh, Dozens of ambulances, police officers were outside the high school following the shooting. A medical helicopter from the University of Michigan landed on the school's parking lot. Evacuated students were sent to a grocery store across the street from the high school for reunification with their very anxious parents. President Biden addressed the shooting while on tour at at a Dakota County Technical College in Minnesota. As we learn the full details, my heart goes out to the families enduring the unimaginable grief of losing a loved one. He has that has had that experience. Uh, you've got to um, know that the whole community has to be in a state of shock right now. End quote. Well, the school is about has about eighteen hundred students. It's located in Oxford, Michigan, which is about 30 minutes north of Detroit. <clears throat> well, Oregon is working on an electronic vaccine ver- verification tool that Oregonians would be able to use to share their covid-19 vaccination status with businesses that ask for proof of verification. Uh, The Oregon Health Authority said the tool would be optional and people would volunteer to opt in. Oregon is testing a model of its tool with 
Communities disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. The goal is to make it available to anyone in Oregon in the spring of 2022. Oregon doesn't require businesses to ask for customers proof of COVID vaccination, but many restaurants and bars in Portland have established their own requirements. Places like the Rose Quarter, which includes the Moda Center, where the Portland Trailblazers play, require proof of vaccination, where this uh, optional tool may be a convenient option. Not much else is known yet about how the tool would work, but the OHA said it would. Uh, it's modeled after a similar tool used in Washington and in California. Now, the concern for many is that what begins as an option may become ultimately mandatory. We'll follow the story as it develops. Well, on Monday, a federal district judge issued an injunction temporarily halting Joe Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for health care workers affiliated with Medicare and Medicaid. The Missouri district judge, who is a 2019 Donald Trump appointee, explained that his decision would ensure that federal agencies do not extend their power beyond the express delegation from Congress. Ultimately, the decision will have to be made as to whether or not uh, the uh, agency that has been charged with establishing this mandate has, in fact, that authority. Well, to help Portland school educators and students adjust to the stresses of resuming full-time in-person classes, the teachers union representing the district's school teachers, that's Portland, is proposing canceling in-person instruction for high schoolers one day every week after the winter break. Well, the Portland teachers union is is proposing self-taught Friday for high schoolers, according to educators, saying they need more time to plan. Well, under a bargaining agreement proposed by the Portland Association of Teachers, Monday afternoon, teachers would spend half of that day offering some student individual or small group help online and half a day planning future instruction. In elementary K through eight and middle schools, students would arrive two hours late or be sent home two hours early one day a week to give their teachers more time to plan instruction designed to make up for lost learning. Union negotiators say district officials and principals could choose when those weekly virtual days uh, would occur late starts and early releases, uh, but they said it would make the most sense for them to happen on days when high schoolers take all eight of their classes for short 44 minute periods rather than the four other weekdays when they take part in just half of their courses for about 90 minutes each. For most high schools, that's Friday. And on weeks when students are only in class for four days uh, due to a holiday or in service, union negotiators say nothing would change. District officials expressed skepticism about the wisdom of cutting back on significant amounts of in-person instruction. They indicated they are uh, particularly concerned about students of color navigating poverty or learning English as a second language, given that their learning needs were poorly met during more than a year in which they received exclusively or largely distance learning. So it's not yet a done deal, but they're asking for one day less instruction. In other uh, news, CNN says it will have conversations and seek additional clarity amid Chris Cuomo's revelations from the New York Attorney General's probe. Well, breaking news this afternoon, I was informed by James that um, Chris Cuomo has been placed on what's the the phrase that they used in indefinite suspension. Now, many media outlets on the left insisted that he be uh, removed from his position and indefinite suspicion, uh, suspicion, suspension is CNN's response uh, to that. Cuomo's um, admission 
uh, to what he said he did and what he actually did contradicts what he told CNN viewers in August when he claimed I never made calls to the press about my brother's situation. And he has now been um, indefinitely suspended. Not sure what that means and if he'll ever be seen on the air again, but we'll just have to wait and see. Now, I want to say thank you to a listener and friend, Rob. I don't know you precisely. I hope we meet one day if we haven't already, uh, who pointed out that every time I make reference to the community Waukesha, I've said it wrong. And while on the one hand, one might be offended by that, I was very grateful for the assistance. He linked me to a site that would help me know how to pronounce it. So as I say this story today, I can proudly say I can say it correctly because a listener was kind enough to give me a resource to help me with it. So thank you, Rob. I really do appreciate it. It's Waukesha. There you have it. Well, the Waukesha suspect, Daryl Brooks' lawyer, in other felony cases, moved to withdraw. He cited conflicts of interests. Well, the Wisconsin attorney representing the parade suspect, Daryl Brooks, in his Milwaukee County legal troubles, is moved to withdraw from those cases due to new conflicts that arose when his client allegedly plowed through a Christmas procession, killing at least six and injuring dozens others. Um, relationships and family uh, familiarities, both direct and indirect, between attorney Joe Damsk and members of the Damask um, Law Enforcement Office and individual family groups and so on affected uh, by the incidents arising on November 21st in that holiday parade have created a concurrent conflict of interest for this attorney representing Mr. Brooks in this case, the motion read. Well, he had hinted at the decision last week, shortly after news of the parade attack emerged. My heart, our hearts are broken for all the families affected by the tragedy at the uh, Waukesha parade. Uh, he told Fox Digital a week ago, the community is dear to our hearts here and we joined in their sorrow and we keep all those affected by this incident in our thoughts and prayers regarding the charges in Milwaukee. He said he will still represent him at the moment, but the next day he notified the court that he planned to withdraw from two open cases in Milwaukee records show both contain multiple charges against Brooks, including one for allegedly shooting at and missing his nephew, another for driving his red Ford SUV over the mother of his child and other developments. Another Waukesha uh, Christmas parade tragedy victim 52 will be laid to rest on Monday, and the parade suspect beat up his girlfriend five months before running her over in his car. He's been charged with six counts of intentional homicide since there was an additional death a day or so ago. Jason Rance blasted CNN for the tweet saying, this is um, why they're not trusted. They downplayed the events that took place. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to take a look at uh, some additional news. And also, Peter Wood will be my guest, president of the National Association of Scholars and author of Wrath, America Enraged. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next two segments, we'll talk with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars and author of Wrath, America Enraged. There's some encouragement in there, so I stay with us. It's going to be a good conversation that's coming up in the next couple of segments. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to take a look at Roe versus Wade in the balance as the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments tomorrow in the case involving Mississippi's abortion law, the 15-week abortion law. Second hour, we'll cover that. Well, a judge blocked the Biden vaccine mandate for health care workers in 10 states. The federal judge um, 
uh, said the scale falls clearly in favor of healthcare facilities operating with some unvaccinated employees, staff, trainees, students, volunteers, and contractors, rather than the swift, irremediable uh, impact of requiring healthcare facilities to choose between two undesirable choices, providing substandard care or providing no health care at all. U.S. District Judge Matthew Schlepp uh, in a 32-page order on Monday. Well, the 10 states impacted by the ruling are those that sued the Biden administration over the rule. Alaska, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming. The president's November 5 order applied to health care workers and hospitals that receive federal funding through Medicaid or Medicare, with the president arguing that the rule was needed to help slow the spread of COVID-19 among the nation's health care workers. But Judge Schlepp, He ruled that the order likely exceeded Biden's authority, giving the 10 states a temporary victory as the case continues to wind its way through the system. Congress did not clearly authorize CMS to enact this politically and economically vast federalism altering and boundary pushing mandate, which Supreme Court precedent requires. In other developments, President Biden backed out of a supply chain speech at the last minute yesterday as a covid variant emerged. And Omicron looms, the C, or as it looms, the CDC has updated its guidance to urge boosters for all individuals over 18, and they're rushing to get a booster shot for those 14 to 16. A San Diego student vaccine mandate has been temporarily blocked by the Ninth Circuit, and COVID lockdown-free Florida is the top vacation spot for the holidays. Omicron is expected to arrive in New York City, so the city's top doctor says COVID masks should be worn indoors at all times. At all times. Authorities are investigating a blast on U.S. soil as a potential prelude to something bigger. And USC fans ignited a backlash with a chant targeting religion during a football game. The Pentagon plans to improve military airfields in Guam and Australia to counter China, but leave other global positions as is. And a plow has cleared a path for dozens stranded inside an English pub. But some, they didn't want to leave. They're planning a reunion next year. The COVID-19 vaccine effectiveness will likely drop against Omicron variant, the Moderna CEO says. And President Biden unveiled his plan for fighting the virus and it's straight from Trump's playbook. Huh. The FDA is moving to authorize a Pfizer BioNTech booster for 16 to 17 year olds. I think I misspoke earlier and said 14 but 16 to 17 year olds. L.A. has begun enforcing a strict mandate requiring proof of vaccination. And the Biden administration is planning to redirect rental assistance funds to areas with the greatest demand. A federal court has halted uh, the, the president's. Well, I already went over that one. President Biden has rejected talk of lockdowns, at least for now. The story notes that some European countries are again flirting with lockdowns because they worry their socialized health systems could get overwhelmed. Many struggle during bad flu seasons, but there are no reason to reimpose restrictions in the U.S. U.S. government survey data indicate 92 percent of adults had COVID antibodies as of September from vaccines or prior infection. It's possible Omicron could fuel a surge in cases this winter, but many fewer people are likely to get severely ill than in the past waves. Evidence also indicates that boosters increase protection against the variant. That's according to The Wall Street Journal. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says in Florida, we will not let them lock you down. We will not let them take your job. We will not let them harm your businesses. We will not let them close your schools. 
Charles Cook says uh, President Biden hasn't the slightest clue what he should do or say on the topic of COVID-19. He is profoundly out of his depth. He is hopelessly hamstrung and is richly deserved. He is beginning to pay a steep political price for the mountain of cheap, glib, opportunistic nonsense and which he indulged during his campaign. Rarely in American history has a disapproval rating been so assiduously well earned. Again, Charles Cook. CNN is planning. Well, we've already updated that story. Buttigieg says, if you don't like gas prices, go buy an electric car. Just go buy one. Biden's transportation secretary said those who buy them will never have to worry about gas prices again. Well, they might. Uh, Ed Morrissey says this. Let them eat electrons says Pete Buttigieg, representing the supposed party of the working class. In an MSNBC interview yesterday, the occasional Secretary of Transportation told Americans that relief from high fuel prices were on the way. Now, by lowering fuel prices, rather not by lowering fuel prices, through more robust American production, however, instead, Buttigieg asked everyone to get giddy in anticipation of buying hugely expensive electric vehicles and um, not ask any questions about how much it will cost to charge them. From Dan Crenshaw, imagine being so out of touch that you think spending tens of thousands more on an electric car is easy for most people. 78% of EV subsidies go to those making six figures. And the rest of us still worry about gas prices because gas affects the cost of literally everything, not just our vehicles. A record number of Americans say that they won't be buying gifts this year. According to the story, the National Retail Federation is still predicting a good holiday for stores, but many will use financing to pay. Ted Cruz weighs in. Part of the consequences of President Biden's inflation crisis, a record number of Americans aren't buying Christmas gifts this year. Black Friday shopping will as uh, was well below post-COVID 2019 levels as well. And it goes on. Well, uh, out of time. All right. We're going to take a break. I'm looking forward to a conversation with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars and author of Wrath, America Enraged, coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that anger now dominates American politics. You've probably noticed. It wasn't always so. Happy Days Are Here Again was FDR's campaign song in 1932. By contrast, candidate Kamala Harris's 2020 campaign song was Mary J. Blige's uh, Work That, Let Them Get Mad, They're Gonna Hate Anyway. Well, both the left and the right now summon anger as the main way to motivate their supporters. After the election, both sides became even more uh, indignant. The left accuses the right of insurrection. The right accuses the left of fraud. And his book is about how we got here, about how America changed from a nation that could be roused to anger but preferred self-control to a nation permanently dialed to 11. The book is titled Wrath. And what an appropriate word. Uh, for where we are today. Wrath, America enraged. Peter Wood is the president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the new book, Wrath, America enraged, as well as last year's acclaimed 1620, the critical response to the 1619 project. A former professor of anthropology and college provost, he is the author of several books about American culture, including diversity, the invention of a concept and a bee in the mouth, anger, 
in America Now. That was back in 2007. He is the editor-in-chief of the journal Academic Questions and a widely published essayist. In 2019, he received the Gene Kilpatrick Prize for contributions to academic freedom. He's based in New York and joins us today by phone. And I am just delighted to have you uh, with us and appreciate your book. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. You write in the beginning of your book, um, in the section titled How to Read This Book, you write that wrath is more of an exploration than an argument. And you also write that my book reflects my uncertainty about what to do next, and I dedicate it to those who share my quandary. I have no answers, easy or otherwise, to those who seek counsel about how to recover our country from a profound betrayal by a self-serving class of powerful people. What I have is a reflection 20 years in the making on anger in America. Now, I'll just ask the simple and rather obvious question. Um, how did anger come to dominate American politics? Is it is it just as recently as the last election or has this been building over a long period of time? Well, it's been building over a long period, at least about 25 years. I, I think the the surprising thing that I found was that anger had found a home in American culture before it entered into politics. We tend to think of politics as the source of our uh, polarity these days, but it's really the destination where it went after it had already taken hold in other departments of our lives. lives. Um, so, you know, and there's a reason for that. I think politics is by itself so fraught with the possibility of anger that people over the generations have built into a safeguards, things that were meant to enable politicians to argue with each other on the floor of the Senate, but then go out and have coffee afterwards and talk things over. Um, that set of safeguards, the, the circuit breakers that kept politics from becoming all rage all the time has gone away. So what we have now is what politics looks like when the safeguards are removed. And uh, I see this as something that has happened across the board. It's not one side or the other that is uh, more responsible for the anger. But that doesn't mean that the anger is exactly the same on either side as well. We've got a distinct character to the anger of the left and a distinct character to the anger on the right. And the two of them when they clash, produce yet something else, a, a, a breakdown, I would say, of, of basic civility in American life. We're all experiencing that in one way or another. Um, I have experienced it firsthand in, in my own church. You know, it's a, a question of whether people can disagree without uh, that getting in the way of a, a, a common worship. And sometimes the answer is no, you can't. they can't. Um, and there are issues we have to deal with because of that. What are the, the pillars that we have abandoned that make civility sort of an arcane uh, notion that no longer uh, is no longer where we hope to ultimately arrive? What are the issues? Well, well, the, the pillars that we once relied upon. Well, the pillar we once relied on was the notion that um, we should engage in self-government, self-control. That is, we govern our individual emotions and souls, and we also govern ourselves collectively as people 
share a commitment to that form of self-control. Now, that was once so common that it hardly needed to be remarked. Mm -hmm. um, For centuries, our country uh, focused on teaching people not only self-reliance, but self-control. People did have tempers. They lost them at times. Anger is a human emotion that is bound to crop up. The question is not whether they get angry, but what happens when they get angry. Do they figure out, I've got to put some guards against this. I have to stop at some point. Um, the uh, For how many hundreds of years, 200 at least, George Washington was the figure that we look to as the father of the country. We tend to think of him as somebody who was uh, staid and dignified and not very exciting, but his contemporaries knew the opposite. He was a man who had a terrific temper. Um, His achievement was that he learned to control it. And when he found himself uh, about to burst his bonds, he was able to draw back and take command of himself. His ability to do that is what gave him command over other people around him. Um, That lesson had been we learned many times over the course of our country's history, uh, and one would have thought it was settled. But um, after World War II, things began to come apart, uh, I think, in two ways. One was that's when Americans really began to discover uh, Freudian psychoanalysis with the idea that if you repress your anger, it will come back at you in the form of neurosis. So it was more healthy mentally to let it all out. And the other was the importation from Europe after the war of uh, existentialism and an idea that to have an authentic life, you had to be in touch with your darkest emotions and let them out. So those two things were circulating at around the same time in the early 1950s, uh, mostly on the, uh, the coastal elites, but gradually they spread throughout the rest of society. Uh, It's a long story. I won't try to tell it on this uh, interview, but I think what you see happening is that the the licensing of anger, this new Mm -hmm. form of uh, individualism, um, gains ground because it proves to be such a useful tool for protest. Uh, People begin to understand that uh, being angry empowers them and excites other people. Anger becomes something of a spectator sport, and that's one of the first places we really see it is that uh, sports, which used to be governed by codes of sportsmanship, suddenly become uh, places where people swear and brawl. And uh, it, it turns out to be one way in which you can make anger into something that is both uh, more lived experience and less controlled. Um we saw it happening in our uh, mass media, our movies, even in our music, uh, and angrification takes place that sweeps through culture. Uh, key to all of that is the way we bring up children. If you teach children at a young age, you have to control yourself. It's different from just letting them have their tantrums and sometimes letting them have their ways. Uh, as parental generations adopted the idea that expressive individualism is better, is kind of morally better than self-control. You begin to get people whose whole lives are uh, open to the the mad swings of anger from one moment to the next. Uh, 
So all of that had been happening for uh, 40 or 50 years before we decided that we would make it part of our politics as well. And I think the crucial years for those changes are uh, starting in the 1990s, when during the Clinton years there was a lot of denunciation going on of the angry white man. But then it really, the dam breaks with um, uh, George Bush's election over uh, Kerry in uh, 2000. After that, um, you find an angry left emerging that is just exuberant in its anger. Um, And that's something new. People have gotten angry before, but now it's something to take pride in. Look how angry I am. Uh, Join me. We're going to have an anger fest. And um, that coincides pretty closely with the rise of social media so that people Mm. could... uh, get online and uh, begin to egg each other on from early in the morning. So uh, it's a bit hard to tease these things apart, but the political anger and the um, the ostentatious anger on social media uh, begin to form a feedback loop and they accelerate. That's the stuff that was happening when I wrote my first book about anger, uh, A Bee in the Mouth, Anger in America Now, I wrote that back in 2006, and um, I was taking account of this stuff and saying that uh, uh, we really need to get control of it because this is not going to lead to any place good. Well, counsel like that seldom is heeded, and I guess I didn't really expect it to be, but I also didn't expect it to uh, accelerate to the degree that it has. We have now turned our politics into nothing but anger, a kind of animosity towards the guys on the other side has become the signature of what it means to engage in political life. No, no will to find a common way is left. Um, and I have to confess that, that I share that. I'm, I don't see now how you can create uh, a meaningful compromise between people who want the country to have no borders and people who want the borders to be enforced or uh, people who believe that um, a woman's right to choose trumps everything and people who think that the right to life trumps everything. Those are not matters to be settled by a, a handshake. Um, we have a, uh, a world right now in which uh, the division between those who think the uh, 2020 election was stolen, and those who call that the big lie uh, can't really even talk about it. Yeah, each yeah. Side, it's boiling mad at the other uh, once the uh, opposing idea is put on the table. Well, I tell you what, um, we need to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Peter Wood, author of Wrath, America Enraged. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Wood, 
president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the new book, Wrath, America Enraged. Now, just before the break, you described unbridled anger as a sort of virtue signaling. And I wanted to ask, progressive elites are stoking rage on a range of issues from anti-racism, critical race theory, uh, efforts to erase American history, the 1619 Project, one example, um, uh, unfettered illegal immigration, the COVID pandemic response, new voter rights uh, comparisons. What are the risks of losing losing emotional self-control and the consequences of a culture that indulges too freely in the celebration of anger? And what kind of threat does that pose to the Republic? Well, that's a a hefty question. Um, I would say that all of the things you're talking about are backed up with emotional rage. If you try to uh, engage in reasoned argument with somebody who holds the positions that you just listed, uh, you don't get reasoned argument in return. Uh, What you get is a kind of denunciation. Uh, You're a racist, you're a xenophobe, you're a homophobe, you're you're some kind of uh, person whose uh, own views are reduced to a pathological, psychological state. Um, So what do you get when you license anger to be the tool by which you proceed through disagreements with other people? Uh, well, what you don't get is argument. What you do get is a, a effort to write the person uh, out of the conversation altogether. Uh, the result of that on the political scale means that tens of millions of people are denied the right to participate in their own government. The, the idea of consent of the governed, which is intrinsic to our republic, uh, disappears because the governed, in this case, can only be controlled or suppressed. Um, now, we're talking about, about a big range of issues. Each of those things is sort of compacted into a, an ideology in which the uh, view is that social justice, or so-called social justice, lies on one side. And on the other side, there only uh, is this uh, category of uh, the ignorant, the uh, deplorable, uh, those who gravitate towards uh, fascist dictatorship. Um, Terms of abuse that don't really describe what anybody believes at all, um, since it's extremely difficult to find anybody who's an actual racist, we have this new concept of systemic racism which can be applied across the board, regardless of what a person really believes or stands Mm -hmm. for. Um, That is a kind of pollution of the world of uh, a a democratic polity. You can't really engage in politics if you're going to be denounced as subhuman for uh, disagreeing with anything that stands in the form of enforced doctrine by the governing party. Well, I'm saying the governing party, of course, can change. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are now in this situation where we face uh, a a government that, in my view, was elected by, let's say, mischief uh, actions taken that didn't fully comport with the rule of law, has brought in um, President Biden and Vice President Harris Uh, They have been able to use the levers of government to advance the kinds of policies you're talking about. We have simply no border enforcement now at all. Um, We bugged out of Afghanistan 
abandoning friends and citizens as well as uh, billions of dollars of equipment. Uh, all that sort of thing rankles, but if you try to express it in uh, the mainstream media in America, uh, you will find yourself not just cut down in that act, but perhaps prohibited from appearing anywhere else. We we have the these incredibly powerful things like Facebook and Twitter, which seem to have a, a capacity to say you don't exist. If we disagree with you, we will prohibit you from expressing any views at all on our platform. And since all the platforms interlock with one another, it really creates a, a class of non-citizens. Um, so when I, I say that in these circumstances, I, I share in the anger. I, I understand where the wrath of the right comes from. It comes from being denied participation in your own society. Um, the real question in my mind is, what can we do to prevent this wrath from descending into uh, to violence or uh, near anarchy or worse, perhaps, despair? Uh, the despair of the person who just gives up and retreats into some kind of bleak inner world. Um, I much favor that we uh, take our wrath and turn it to as constructive an end as we can. That may mean uh, winning elections or participating more fully in local politics, but it may also mean simply uh, engaging in civil disobedience, saying that there's some things you can't make me do. Um, while I myself have been vaccinated, when I see people who refuse to be vaccinated because they think that's a illegal or improper intrusion of the state on their personal privacy, uh, I'm perfectly good with that. I think that's a a worthy act. It comes with some risks um, of how you will be dealt with by the authorities, but you're making a statement there that makes some sense in pushing back against an authoritarian regime that wants to turn everything we do into a matter of state policy. Well, I appreciate that in addition to describing where we are as a country, as a culture with regard to anger, that you also offer um advice that wrath is a dangerous weapon you have to use it wisely to avoid self-injury and mm-hmm. that that it needs to be used constructively in, in overcoming things like um, as you pointed out censorship and silencing and criminalization of dissenting opinion other forms of, of persecution what encouragement can you give our listeners as our time is ticking away um, who recognize and will immediately recognize what you write about in the book but want to to do something different, to be constructive, to perhaps move the republic in a direction that's more uh, more constructive and favorable to a future. Well, I took heart from the uh, school board elections and state elections that uh, occurred this month, especially in Virginia, but also in New Jersey, here where I am in New York, where there was a real sign that uh, the public is sufficiently set up to push back against this. That's one thing. When I see people resisting, as in uh, air traffic controllers or airline pilots, or in, in, again in New York, it's been nurses and doctors and uh, firefighters and policemen who have uh, put some brakes on this. Whatever we do for a living, we have some opportunity to exert ourselves beyond just our individual choices and to influence other people. 
maybe the hardest thing of all to do is, is to bring this into um, your actual community, your friends, mm-hmm. uh, relations, uh, people that you go to church with. Um, I'm in the midst of that now, and I, I live in a, a deep uh, blue part of uh, New York City. I'm on Upper West Side. I am surrounded by people who uh, strongly disagree with my every opinion. Um, and yet I try to pick my way through that by showing people that uh, I can disagree with them without becoming a monster. Um, but I don't want to give up my right to dissent. And I think that that's a hard choice that we each have to make individually about where you're going to dissent and how you're going to do it. Um, and sometimes the results are just not very nice. You, you lose friends or in, in one of my cases, a community a group at church just broke up uh, because people couldn't stand uh, knowing, just knowing, not even expressing that others held different views. Mm. I think it's important that that kind of thing actually happen, that you don't live in fear of it happening to the point where you begin to compromise away your right to self-expression. Yeah. Um, I don't encourage people to be antagonistic, but I do encourage them to be um, thoughtfully forceful in maintaining uh, their opinions against peer pressure. Yeah, great advice. Well, the book is really a must read. Wrath, America Enraged. I wish we had more time because there's so much more to talk about, but I would highly recommend it. It's published by Encounter. And Peter Wood, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it with us. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up. And then we're going to talk about what's happening in the Supreme Court tomorrow on Roe versus Wade. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as you know, Roe versus Wade is hanging in the balance as the Supreme Court will take up the issue tomorrow when they'll hear oral arguments in favor of and opposed to its continuation. This is the result of a Mississippi challenge. We'll talk more about that later in the program. But first, uh, a few news items. A pastor in Finland is facing criminal charges for his biblical take on homosexuality, criminalizing the faith or biblical Christianity for a 24 page booklet published back in 2004. Well, actor Jesse Smollett played the victim card in his uh, trial as it began yesterday. In his opening statement, Special Prosecutor Dan Webb said that Smollett's fakery was not just a criminal act. It was a despicable act that denigrated victims of actual hate crimes. Later in the trial, Smollett's attorneys said it was the actor who is black and openly gay who was, in fact, the real victim. Not only a homophobic attack, but also a tremendous rush to judgment by police and prosecutors that ruined his career and reputation. By the way, there's been a video uncovered that reveals the rehearsal for the events that were to take place the following day. Well, Jewish citizens of Beverly Hills received anti-Semitic flyers on the first night of Hanukkah. The flyer blamed them for COVID. Hmm. 210 million packages have been stolen from Americans this year. From that story, SafeWise found that a mind-boggling 64.1% of Americans have been victims of package theft in the last year, a 36% increase from the prior year, according to the survey, and 53.5% had multiple parcels snatched during that period. Well, federal workers who don't meet the vaccine mandate requirement won't face discipline 
That is until January, and here's why. The largest federal employee union applauded the guidance on discipline. In a reality check, the Omicron variant is spreading fast, but scientists call it mild and warn not to panic. So let's all head for our bunkers and panic. Well, Jen Psaki was grilled over her boss's hypocrisy on xenophobic travel bans. At least that's what he called them when Trump was in office. The media is being hit for their sophomoric and ridiculous take on the travel ban after calling Donald Trump's restrictions racist. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey is stepping down. The new CEO says Twitter is not bound by the First Amendment. Huh. Some predict that uh, he might, in fact, make a poisonous platform even worse. We'll see what actually happens. Well, the Build Back Better Act would give amnesty to 6.5 million illegal immigrants, the Congressional Budget Office says. And why could uh, what could possibly go wrong? The Kamala Harris-led Space Council is facing challenges from Russia and China. You can read more about that in the Washington Examiner online. In opening arguments, prosecutors told a jury that Ghislaine Maxwell was a dangerous predator who served up minors to Jeffrey Epstein for sexual abuse. Meanwhile, the defense dubiously claims Jussie Smollett was a real victim as the hoax hate crime trial begins. Enabling a destructive lifestyle, New York City opened the nation's first government-sanctioned drug injection sites. Well, the smash-and-grab crime wave is spreading across uh, cities, primarily headed by Democrats. NBA star has changed his name to celebrate his U.S. citizenship. He is now Ennis Cantor Freedom. Cyber Monday online sales dropped 1.4 percent, falling for the first time ever. A major study undercuts President Biden's explanation for the surge in illegal immigration. According to the study, migrants come for jobs rather than fleeing violence or climate change. And Brett Kavanaugh could cast the swing vote that overturns Roe versus Wade. Oral arguments will be heard tomorrow. Well, on this day in history, 1789, the United States and Britain signed preliminary peace articles in Paris for ending the Revolutionary War. The Treaty of Paris would be signed in September of 1783, which is the following year. 1835, Samuel Longhorn Clemens, best known as Mark Twain, is born in Florida, Missouri. 1960, the last DeSoto is built by Chrysler, which had decided to retire the brand after 32 years. 1966, the former British colony of Barbados becomes independent. 1981, the United States and the Soviet Union opened negotiations in Geneva aimed at reducing nuclear weapons in Europe. 1982, the Michael Jackson album Thriller is released by Epic Records. 1993, President Bill Clinton signs the Brady Bill, which requires a five-day waiting period for handgun purchases and background checks of prospective buyers. The year 2000. Al Gore's lawyers battle for his political survival in the Florida and U.S. Supreme Courts. Meanwhile, GOP lawmakers in Tallahassee moved to award the presidency to George W. Bush in case the courts did not by appointing their own slate of electors. 2004, Jeopardy fans see Ken Jennings' 74-game winning streak end as he loses to real estate agent Nancy Zerg. 2008, Space Shuttle Endeavor returns to Earth after a nearly 16-day mission to repair and upgrade the International Space Station. 2008, the world's most comprehensive legalized heroin program becomes permanent with overwhelming approval from Swiss voters who simultaneously rejected the decriminalization of marijuana. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi calls on veteran Democratic Congressman John Conyers to resign in the face of multiple accusations of sexual misconduct. Conyers would resign 
five days later. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Roe versus Wade is hanging in the balance. And some of the things you need to know about Dobbs versus Jackson uh, on December 1st, which, of course, is tomorrow. Roe versus Wade is going to face a significant threat. Again, the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Well, Capitol Hill police expect up to uh, 20,000 protesters on the morning of December 1st, an historic turnout of pro-life and pro-choice or pro-abortion advocacy that will likely result in a larger uh, crowd than any Supreme Court demonstration ever. Now, how is Dobbs different than other abortion cases? Well, the Supreme Court has reviewed several cases related to abortion since the 1973 decision, Roe versus Wade. But of these cases, only Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 addressed the Roe precedent. Other cases involving abortion were related to late-term abortions, free speech rights on pro-life advocates, and restrictions on abortion providers based on ambulatory care or proximities to particular medical services, among other issues. But this is the uh, uh, the opportunity to review the merits of Roe versus Wade in the face of Mississippi's law. Well, a major component of Roe was the issue of viability. In Dobbs, the Supreme Court has agreed to address that question, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. It's a major question. Why is the question significant? Well, this question is significant because Roe forbids states from prohibiting abortion pre-viability. This prohibition is very is the very reason why lower courts have kept Roe in place. Indeed, one of the judges that struck down Mississippi's law in the lower federal court said in an unbroken line dating to Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court's abortion cases have established and affirmed and reaffirmed a woman's right to choose an abortion before viability. States may regulate abortion procedures prior to viability so long as they do not impose an undue burden on the women's right, but they may not ban abortions, end quote. Well, the fact that this U.S. Supreme Court is revisiting viability is entirely implicative that their decision will, in some fashion, directly impact the Roe precedent. So, again, this is very significant. Now, what are the potential outcomes in this case, the case Dobbs? Well, there are essentially three possible outcomes in Dobbs. The court can strike down the Mississippi abortion law. The court can uphold the Mississippi abortion law while still maintaining Roe. Or the court can uphold the Mississippi abortion law and overturn Roe altogether. That seems the least likely, given the conservative nature, not in terms of ideology, but the conservative nature of the court overturning previous precedent. But it's a possibility. John Bursch, who serves as senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, spoke with the Freedom Center's managing editor, John Wesley Reed, to expound on the potential outcomes of this uh, this case. He's argued 12 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and over 30 state Supreme Courts. And according to the Federalist Society, Bursch has the third highest success rate for persuading justices to adopt his legal position compared to other lawyers not working for the federal government. So we're going to take a look at those options when we come back from the break, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, there are three options in this case. The court can strike down the Mississippi abortion law. The court can uphold the Mississippi abortion law while still maintaining Roe, or the court can uphold the Mississippi abortion law and overturn Roe versus Wade altogether. More on that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the Supreme Court, who will hear uh, oral arguments tomorrow on the uh, 
Dobbs case that has the potential to overturn Roe versus Wade. As I was discussing prior to the break, there are three options available to the court. The first is a strike down of Mississippi's 15 week ban. Now, if the Supreme Court affirms the lower court rulings, Mississippi's 15 week ban on abortion will have reached its terminal demise. And while Mississippi does have the option to request a reconsideration from the court, those petitions are very rare. Their approval is rarer and a reverse decision is even more rare. So that's not likely if the court strikes down Mississippi's 15-week ban. rather. Ultimately, if the Supreme Court affirms the lower court ruling, the fight against abortion will remain in place as it was before Dobbs. For some pro-life advocates, this would be a debilitating setback. For others, it would inspire them to fight harder and to continue in that fight. Option two, a middle ground option. If the court rejects the lower court's rulings and upholds Mississippi's law, Uh, They would also uphold Roe versus Wade. Now, this would look like the uh, court rejecting the viability clause in Casey, since viability is not objectively known. In 1973, the gestational age at which a child could generally survive outside of the womb, which is viability, was seen as later in the developmental stage. But there have been great medical advancements in uh, neonatology rather since even 1992 when Casey was heard. And so a child's viability could be recognized by the court as being much sooner in the development stage. In fact, with medical technological advancements, we now know that viability is sooner than the 24 weeks gestation that the courts have unofficially held to in the past. In fact, over the past few years, the world has seen multiple examples of babies surviving as young as 21 weeks, debunking the generalized 24 week idea. So the middle ground option could appear to as a new standard for statewide abortion regulation. Well, from a pro-life perspective, this option is an incremental victory, not a pragmatic victory. The vast majority of abortions happen before 15 weeks gestation. Thus, the middle ground option would bring pro-life efforts closer to their goal, but would still only be a chip of the larger agenda. And there's the third option. If the court sees reason to, a complete overturn of Roe versus Wade could result from the Dobbs decision. Now, In the event of a Roe overturn, it's widely agreed that regulatory power will return to the states. It wouldn't put an end to abortion, but the decision making about how it was going to be handled would return to the states where it was prior to Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton. And that would enable states to outlaw abortion if they so choose. And many of them are trying to do just that. Others would be able to uh, regulate it according to the dictates of their particular locality. So how will each justice likely rule in Dobbs? Well, that's the $65 million question. It's naive to assume that a justice's ideology will follow their decisions in every ruling. And by extension, an ideological majority should be seen with the same scrutiny. Now, while it's easy to assume that the right block will rule conservative and the left block liberal, that isn't always the case on the ideological spectrum, even with specific issues, as we've all seen. How the justices will decide the Dobbs case can be subjectively um, uh, analyzed based on their prior rulings and personal positions toward abortion. But even that uh, may not be very helpful. Now, to be fair, not all the cases below uh, relate to the viability aspect of Roe and Casey. This arguably renders them irrelevant to an analysis, except that some of the justices still refer to Roe and Casey in their opinions, despite the case's irrelevancy toward viability. So even irrelevant cases are worth considering. So 
Chief Justice Roberts. Well, conservatives have largely coined the chief justice as a wild card, given some of his decisions, which technicalities aside, haven't landed on the right. Upholding Obamacare and the National Federation of Independent Business at all versus Sebelius, effectively redefining sex in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in Bostock versus Clayton County, among others. Well, some have gone so far as to call him a liberal, but that logic is self-defeating. That is, to ideologically categorize someone based on the minority of their opinions, um, what does that say to the majority of their opinions is, you know, an unanswered question. If a, a conservative justice rules in 10 cases in which three uh, are liberal leaning, what is the one to say of that liberal justice who votes conservative in three of 10 decisions? Well, the conservative court of public opinion would certainly not hail the liberal justice as a conservative. To be fair, Roberts does push the envelope in general, but on abortion, he's ruled ideologically right in most abortion related cases before him. And Carhartt versus Gonzalez, he ruled in a majority to uphold the Partial Birth Abortion Act of 2003. He was joined by current justices Thomas and Alito in Whole Woman's Health and Hellerstead. Roberts ruled in a minority to uphold a Texas law that would require certain restrictions on abortion clinics, such as shorter proximities to admitting hospital care. He was joined by current justices Thomas and Alito in June Medical Services versus Russo. Roberts ruled in the majority against a law that mirrored the law. Uh, in Hellerstad, the curious move from the chief justice after he ruled to uphold a similar law in Texas was, in his words, because the Louisiana law imposes a burden on access to abortion just as severe as that imposed by the Texas law for the same reasons. Therefore, he reasoned, the Louisiana law cannot stand under our precedence. End quote. Well, even though Roberts voted to uphold the Texas law in Hellerstad, since the majority opinion uh, struck it down, Roberts felt that precedent takes priority over reconsideration. Well, this is important to note since the upcoming Dobbs case directly counters the precedent set in Roe and Casey. Roberts may have jurisprudential reason to think that Roe was a bad call, but he also thought that about the Hellerstad decision and based his June medical decision off the precedent of a decision he dissented with. Well, in Nifla versus Bikara, Roberts ruled to strike down a California law that required non-abortive pregnancy centers to provide abortion referrals. While this case was more about free speech than it was about abortion, the court ruled on ideological lines. Roberts was joined by current justices Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch. Well, in addition to his rulings, Roberts was the signatory of the 1990 Bush senior White House brief that stated Roe was wrongly decided and should be overruled. Now, some take great heart in that, but we need to be tempered in expecting that means uh, the decision he'll make in this case is already set. Whether this brief may have been more in step with the administration as a whole and not just Roberts is debated. At the time, Roberts was the deputy solicitor general. During Roberts' confirmation hearings, both to the D.C. Circuit Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, he was aggressively pressed for his position on abortion and Roe in particular, to which he provided diplomatic non-answers, which is what judges do, as is routine for federal judge appointees. The verdict? Well, he's still a wild card, but evidence hints that he might uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban with a middle ground option, which is keeping Roe in place. We'll see what happens. There's Justice Thomas. He's ruled ideologically 
um, it, uh, right in every abortion-related case before him. The longest seat is jurist on the current court, Justice Thomas. Uh, uh, record is perhaps the most absolute when considering whether he'd overturn Roe, since he, in fact, did rule to overturn Roe when given the chance. Thomas is the only justice on the current court who was also seated during the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision for which he ruled in the minority. Thomas opposes Roe versus uh, Roe and Casey precedents and enthusiastically so. In June, medical versus Russo, a win for abortion advocates, he dissented and said of abortion precedents, and I'm quoting, but those decisions created the right to abortion out of a whole cloth without a shred of support from the Constitution's text. Our abortion precedents are grievously wrong and should be overruled because we have neither jurisdiction nor constitutional authority to declare Louisiana's duly enacted law unconstitutionally uh, unconstitutional. Rather, I respectfully dissent. The verdict on Justice Thomas, he's no wild card. Justice Thomas looks like a sure win to uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban and overturn Roe. Justice Breyer, considered moderately liberal, Justice Breyer, the eldest of the justices, has ruled ideologically left in every abortion-related case before him. The verdict in this one, Justice Breyer is very likely to rule against Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. Then there's Justice Alito. Like Thomas, Justice Alito has ruled ideologically right in every abortion-related case before him. And while a federal judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, Alito was one of three judges to rule on Planned Parenthood versus Casey before the case was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice Alito was the lone dissenter in an overturn of the spousal notification portion of the law being challenged. Justice Alito also expressed personal opinions about abortion, particularly about Roe, uh, before his career as a federal judge. In a 1985 memo, he said, we should make clear that we disagree with Roe versus Wade and would welcome the opportunity to brief the issue of whether and if so, to what extent that decision should be overruled. While this quote doesn't provide an absolute current position taken by uh, now Justice Alito, it does reinforce the rest of his reputation towards abortion and Roe in particular. Now, to be fair, he also uh, is on record as having acknowledged that Roe is precedent. But in the same fairness, these remarks were made during his uh, confirmation hearing to the appeals and Supreme Court, where any appointee will refuse to give their position um, to, on a judicial matter. So with regard to Justice Alito, the verdict is very likely to uphold Mississippi's 15 week abortion ban and overturn Roe. We'll continue to take a look at the uh, U.S. Supreme Court justices and where they're likely to stand on the question of Roe versus Wade. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show as we anticipate tomorrow's oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court in the Mississippi case. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the fact that on December 1st, Roe versus Wade will face a significant threat. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Capitol Hill police expect up to 20,000 protesters uh, on the morning of the um, oral arguments. An historic turnout of pro-life and pro-abortion advocacy that's going to likely result in a larger crowd than any Supreme Court demonstration ever. This issue has remained contentious. We're winding our way through the Supreme Court justices who will be hearing the arguments uh, tomorrow and um Predicting, just based on their history, statements prior to their seat on the Supreme Court and during their tenure there, 
uh, what the verdict might be for each one of them. Justice Sotomayor, uh, the anchor of the court's left block, the justice has uh, ruled ideologically left in every abortion-related case before her, a constant supporter of abortion. She's been less than shy in her dissents. In a 5-4 decision last September, the court refused to interfere with the Texas heartbeat law, effectively upholding it. In her dissent, she said, redemptive themes in Old Henry. For the second time, and I'm quoting, for the second time, the court is presented with an application to enjoin a statute enacted in open disregard of the constitutional rights of women seeking abortion care in Texas. For the second time, the court declines to act immediately to protect these women from grave and irreparable harm, end quote. Although the court later decided to hear the case, Sotomayor gave a strong statement of opposition towards her jurist. Uh, colleagues in reference to the court's original denial of injunctive relief. And while addressing law students via virtual appearance, she said, and I quote, you know, I can't change Texas law, but you can. And everyone else uh, who may or may not like it can go out there and be lobbying forces in changing laws that you don't like. Well, the verdict in Justice Sotomayor Well, given her opinions and the reasons for them, Justice Sotomayor is very likely to rule against Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. Then there's Justice Kagan. Similar to Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan is a moderate on the court's left block, but has um, ruled ideologically left in every abortion-related case before her. Uh, The only hint she has ever shown toward abortion restrictions came while working in the Clinton White House when she urged the president to support a partial birth abortion ban though it uh, is generally agreed that her motive was for political purposes and not ideological. Regardless, uh, partial birth abortions are outside the parameters of Roe's application. Now, one can uh, uh, can consistently support Roe while opposing partial birth abortions. Thus, even she is opposed to partial birth abortion. Her record shows unfettered support for Roe. Now, during the oral arguments for the Texas Heartbeat Law Challenge, Justice Kagan expressed her opposition to the law, but also affirmed the court's precedent, quoting the actual provisions in this law have prevented every woman in Texas from exercising a constitutional right as declared by this court. That's not a hypothetical. That's an actual end quote. Well, the verdict for Justice Kagan is very likely to rule against Mississippi's 15 week abortion ban. Then there's Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Well, the pair, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, have much shorter records to analyze on abortion, though both have ruled ideologically right in every abortion-related case before them. Gorsuch, while on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, ruled on a unique string of abortion-related cases, though none that address the Roe precedent. Well, off the bench, their personal opinions on abortion are also limited and not directly related to lo- to Roe. For a clarifying point about Kavanaugh, many who opposed his appointment to the Supreme Court alluded to a 2003 email uh, between Kavanaugh and James Ho, then chief counsel for the Senate Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights and Property Rights. An excerpt from the email reads, and I'm quoting, I am not sure that all legal scholars refer to Roe as the settled law of the land at the Supreme Court level since court can always overrule its precedent, and three current justices on the court would do so, end quote. Well, the email doesn't provide any substantial reason to suggest that Kavanaugh, who was working in the Bush administration at the time, would overturn Roe, despite what his critics said of the email during the 2018 confirmation. Still, Kavanaugh was clear that precedent is not a concrete, as concrete rather, as perhaps Chief Justice Roberts would hold. So if Kavanaugh did have reservations about overturning Roe, we can likely eliminate precedent as his hesitancy. The three justices, uh, Kavanaugh was likely 
likely referring to were Thomas Scalia and Rehnquist, considering they were the only three justices on the court in 2003 who ruled to overturn Roe in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. The verdict? Well, it's likely that both Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh will rule to uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, while they take the middle ground option on over or overturn Roe is not clear. So that's a big maybe there. Then there's Justice Barrett, the newest of the justices and the youngest woman ever appointed to the high court. Justice Barris has ruled Barrett rather has ruled ideologically right in every abortion related case before her. But it's worth noting the secondary nature of abortion in these cases. While she was on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, she ruled on cases where abortion was secondary, including the disposal of fetal remains and whether abortion on the basis of race, sex or gender is lawful. She also favored a ruling that would require doctors to inform parents of a minor seeking an abortion. And while on the Supreme Court, she has um, only had the opportunity to grant or deny injunctive relief when opposition tried to halt the Texas heartbeat law, which she refused, along with Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Well, despite her minimal ruling history on abortion, there is reason to believe Barrett is pro-life. In 2006, Barrett and her husband, Jesse, endorsed an advertisement with Right to Life St. Joseph County that condemned Roe versus Wade. In 2008, Barrett co-authored a journal entry for the Notre Dame School of Law, which stated that abortion is always immoral. When questioned about this publication during her confirmation hearings, you might recall, Barrett said that she and her co-author were referencing the standard of Catholic Church teaching and said that if she was confirmed, her faith would have no influence on the discharge of my duties as a judge, end quote. And while this could sound as uh, if her pro-life position is dormant in her uh, jurisprudence, it is uh, pretty crucial to remember the normalcy of neutral answers during confirmation hearings. The verdict for uh, Justice Barrett is likely to uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban and overturn Roe. Well, the battle timeline of Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban began in March of 2018. On March 19th, then-Governor of Mississippi Phil Bryant signed a 15-week abortion ban into law. Hours later, the Center for Reproductive Rights filed suit in the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of Mississippi. On the 20th, the next day of the same year, the Center for Reproductive Rights is granted their request of a temporary restraining order blocking the 15-week ban for 10 days. Well, in November of 2018... The Center for Reproductive Rights is granted a permanent injunction by the same federal court blocking Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion indefinitely. When issuing the order, Judge Carlton Reeves delivered a strong rebuke of the Mississippi legislature, saying this, and I quote, The real reason we are here is simple. The state chose to pass a law it knew was unconstitutional to endorse a decades-long campaign fueled by national interest groups to ask the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. This court follows the commands of the Supreme Court and the dictates of the United States Constitution rather than the disingenuous calculations of the Mississippi legislature. Wow, that's certainly a cynical response, but they continue. Mississippi's law violates Supreme Court precedent, and in doing so, it disregards the 14th Amendment guarantee of autonomy for women desiring to control their own reproductive health, end quote. Well, that's the very question that the Supreme Court will take up. Then move forward to December of 2019. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the lower court's decision with Judge Patrick Higginbotham opining 
In an unbroken line dating to Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court's abortion cases have established and affirmed and reaffirmed a woman's right to choose an abortion before viability. States may regulate abortion procedures prior to viability so long as they do not impose an undue burden on the woman's right, but they may not ban abortions, end quote. Well, Mississippi then requested a hearing on Blanc which would summon the entire Fifth Circuit and not just a panel of three. This request is denied the following January. Then move forward to June of 2020. Mississippi files a writ of certiorari. I can never say this word correctly. Anyway, a writ requesting the U.S. Supreme Court review the 15-week abortion ban. Move forward to May of uh, 2021. The U.S. Supreme Court grants Mississippi's request. December 1st, that's tomorrow, 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments for Dobbs and the future of Roe versus Wade hangs in the balance. This is a very significant uh, time, but as uh, the verdict on each of the uh, Supreme Court justices indicate, it's by no means a uh, certain outcome at this point. Well, ahead of the oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the first direct challenge to Roe versus Wade in a generation, the Family Research Council published a new comprehensive issue brief identifying the United States as one of only six nations that allow abortion on demand through the entire span of a pregnancy. The U.S. joins human rights violators, China, North Korea and Vietnam, as well as Canada, South Korea in their extreme abortion policy. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, the FRC report indicates that across the globe, the vast majority of countries, 130, in fact, completely prohibit or only allow abortion in specific cases. Seventy seven nations outlaw abortion completely or only allow abortion where the mother's life or physical health is at risk, making this by far the most common type of abortion law in the world. Twenty three nations only allow abortion for some additional rare cases like rape, incest or a fetal abnormality. This means 100 nations, over half of the countries surveyed, completely outlaw abortion or only allow abortion in rare cases to protect the life of the mother or in cases of rape, incest or because of a fetal abnormality. Only 67 of 197 countries surveyed allowed elective abortion. Of the those 67 countries, 56 nations, including 48 of 51 European countries, restrict all abortions by 14 weeks. The remaining three European countries either prohibit abortion entirely or only permit it in rare cases. Again, the U.S. Supreme Court taking up Dobbs tomorrow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there is a huge battle And battle lines have been drawn tomorrow in the U.S. Supreme Court. But those who stand on the side of the pro-life view on the subject of abortion recognize that they alone, the attorneys making oral arguments and the Supreme Court justices, cannot be relied upon to win this battle. So national pro-life leaders have prayed for God to guide the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, these are national pro-life leaders. They gathered in Jackson, Mississippi on Sunday to pray and ask God to guide the justices as they hear arguments in the Mississippi case that could upend Roe versus Wade. Speaking at the event, Mississippi's Governor Tate Reeves said abortion is barbaric. Abortion is evil. It's probably the greatest evil of our day. 
The Pray Together for Life event was hosted by the Family Research Council, which, as you probably know, is a conservative public policy group headed by Tony Perkins. The gathering, which uh, could be viewed online, by the way, was held at the New Horizon Church International, whose senior pastor is Bishop Ronnie Crudup Sr., Well, starting on Wednesday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And the case involves a Mississippi law that prohibits most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. If the law is upheld by the court, it would affect Roe's ruling that states may regulate abortion after 24 weeks of pregnancy. Viability, uh, we have learned over the years. Uh, is much sooner than the 24 weeks that has generally been agreed upon in earlier decisions. Well, the as the Supreme Court blog reporter Amy Howe wrote, the decision to hear the case on the merits means that there were at least four votes to hear the case. It also suggests that those justices feel confident that there are at least five to uphold the Mississippi law. Now, that's a very optimistic view. I hope she's right. She goes on. Conservatives hope and liberals fear that the court will renounce nearly five decades of abortion jurisprudence and overturn the landmark ruling of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Over the last half a century, the result of the court's decision in 1973 has been the death of over 60 million babies. 60 million. Tony Perkins at the Pray Together for Life event points out, but that's not all. Abortion on demand has left our society believing that a child's life is a choice to be made rather than a gift created in the image of God to be cherished and embraced. The indifference and the callous view of the abortion of the unborn, rather, has contributed to the devaluing of all human life, as the streets of America so tragically attest. Tonight we gather from coast to coast, border to border, to pray together for life, to pray for godly wisdom for the United States Supreme Court, which will hear the oral arguments on Wednesday, this Wednesday, December the 1st, in a case originating right here in Jackson, Mississippi. Perkins went on to say, it is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which, by the way, I have to say, is not a health organization. It's an abortion business. Well, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves said, now I think too many politicians are afraid to say it, but I'll say it. Abortion is barbaric, evil. It's probably the greatest evil of our day. Every single day in America, thousands of children lose their God-given inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I was asked earlier today why those who are on the other side of this are wrong when they say, my body, my choice. Reeves added, it's a pretty simple answer because there is a baby inside that womb that deserves to be protected. And if people like me and you do not stand up for the unborn child, then who will? Because they cannot stand up to defend themselves. Well, I will say that in the years since Roe versus Wade legalizing abortion in every state across the uh, across the fruited plains, there have been many women who have suffered through abortions for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's not the position of the pro-life community to judge those women, but it is to acknowledge the grief that many of them have experienced since. It is an unacknowledged grief that the culture says does not exist and does not permit the expression of. And I will just say this, that the God of all grace and mercy looks upon every woman who has had an abortion with just that mercy and grace, that you can walk before him in repentance as all of us who uh, are sinners from birth um, are required to do in order to have access to his throne of grace and find thorough and complete forgiveness. There's not a separate category for those who have had an abortion uh, in the kingdom of God. We all are sinners. We have all fallen short. And it's only the righteousness of Christ that grants us favor 
uh, by God and gives us access to that throne of grace. So if you have had an abortion, I want you to know that there is a place in God's kingdom for you, and it's not second place. Uh, Come before him and receive the same grace and mercy that I received when I came before him, acknowledging my need for a savior, confessing my sins, which are far more than I'm even aware of. And God, who is gracious and mercy and sacrificed his son to give us that forgiveness and access to God, extends it to to all sinners, um, me among them. So while this is a serious issue, uh, it is certainly one that um, is not outside of God's provision of grace. Well, at the event that I've been referencing, Dean Nelson, who's a senior fellow for African-American studies at the Family Research Council, said, how many of you know that when Christians come together, we win the abolitionists during slavery? When they came together, Christians, we saw the end of slavery. When Christians came together during the civil rights struggle, we saw the advancements of all Americans. Ephesians four, uh, Ephesians chapter four encourages us to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray. Lord, there's probably no area that is more evident of how we have rejected you and rejected our your principles than, Lord, what we have seen over 60 million children lost innocently to abortion since 1973. Father, we pray tonight for these justices uh, who will be hearing these cases. We ask, Lord, that you would give them an ear to hear and a heart to discern. More than 20 national pro-life leaders spoke at the Pray Together for Life gathering. They prayed and not just spoke. They prayed, recognizing that their words are not sufficient to make the difference, but they made an appeal to a holy and sovereign God. Well, at the closing of the prayer event, Tony Perkins said, I want you to grab the hands of the person next to you and let's stand in unity, praying that God would heal this land. Father, you have heard the prayers of your people from coast to coast, border to border, just a sample of the prayers that have ascended before your throne. Lord, we come boldly before that throne of grace, and we do ask you to heal our land. Lord, open our eyes. Open the eyes of this nation that we might see your truth. Open our ears that we might hear your word once again, that it might transform us as a people. God, have mercy upon us. Lord, hear our prayers and do what only you can do in transforming our lives by the truth of your word. Amen. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and uh, producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow we'll talk with Kevin Hassett. He's the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. The book is published by Regnery. That's coming up in the second hour of tomorrow's program. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.